Open code equals better science. Something for your mind. Welcome, this is episode one of Something for Your Mind, and I'm your host, François Dion. In this episode, we will cover open source software and some of the organizational and financial aspects of, of open source software. And we will do that through an interview with Leah Sillen of NumFocus. We were able to talk with her at Pi Data Carolinas 2016 just a few days ago. And uh, so we'll hear the interview with Leah. But before we get into that aspect of the program, uh, we will start first with something you might have uh, heard on a hip uh, radio station or something like that, chip tunes or chip music. And perhaps if you're older, you remember the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, and the music that came out of that. And the reason uh, you remember the NES is because uh, Nintendo sold uh, over 60 million of these uh, NES uh, over the years. And so that music, that type of sound, became synonymous with the Nintendo. However, it doesn't necessarily apply only to the Nintendo. Many different personal computers over a period of time in the, during the 80s had sound chips, uh, hence the name uh, Chiptune had sound chips that allowed them to reproduce music uh, from a synthetic perspective, not necessarily uh, the current modern form of uh, playing music uh, digitally, which is uh, just uh, simple streams of, of bytes that represent, um, at the 16-bit value, uh, the amplitude of uh, the signal and uh, sampled enough time per second to represent the actual sound. This is how, for example, when you're listening to music on your uh, phone, there's a bitstream that is converted into analog output through a digital-to-analog converter. However, uh, back in those days, in the, the 80s, the chip music, first of all, although some chips did have the capability of playing back sampled music, and even the Nintendo actually uh, was able to do that through the, the chip that it used, which was a Rico chip. And that chip allowed uh, the playback of low-quality sampling. Playback of low-quality sampling. However, because it did take a lot of space on the cartridge, they would rely instead on using the synthesizer mode of the chip, so which had pulses and triangle uh, sound waves, and also noise, which is uh, what the rhythmic component would uh, use. And as far as uh, some of the pulse could be used to produce percussive sounds too also. And so you could create basically a whole soundtrack with these uh, chips. So before we go any further, so just so we understand what we are talking about, let's uh, listen to a, a short piece here uh, as a chip tune, and you'll uh, recognize right away that 
quality of sound. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that. And that was Für Elise, uh, Beethoven's uh, classical piece, in a classic 8-bit or chiptune uh, sound. So on the computer side of things, one of the most popular chip uh, from the 80s was the uh, Commodore 64 SID chip. It actually was also found on the VIC-10 and Commodore 128. But basically, the Commodore 64 was by far the most popular of these models. And that chip, that SID chip, allowed, basically, again, making uh, synthetic sounds. But what was interesting also is that beside the fact that it had uh, several uh, tone generators, uh, it could generate three sounds at the same time, it also had uh, different waveforms, so not just the triangle or the pulse, uh, but it also had uh, a sawtooth, which sounded a lot richer and, um, and less mechanical. And also, uh, of course, a white noise generator. But also, it had uh, advanced features that normally would be found on expensive synthesizers, such as uh, ring modulation...
It had uh, filters uh, as a low-pass, band-pass, and high-pass filter. Again, all these features were normally found on very expensive synthesizers, but here that little chip, the SID chip, was providing that capability to the Commodore 64. And the same uh, person who uh, created the SID chip at Moss uh, ended up also working on the Ensonic dock chip. And that dock chip was found in the Apple II GS. So this is a bit uh, later in the 80s. And in the interim, uh, in between those chips, we can find also two uh, more chips that we do have to mention. One is the Atari Pokey, and the Pokey was not just for music. It actually was used for the keyboard, and it had uh, high-resolution timers, and even a serial port. But it had four 8-bit channels, or it could also be used as two 16-bit channels. Although, again, the term chip music is applied here, uh, this was mostly used in... PCM mode or basically playing back samples. So it's this uh, synthesizer versus sampler argument in the music world that's being uh, brought here forth at the computer level in the 80s where some computers have the capability of generating sounds through synthesizers, either subtractive or additive technology, and others are producing their sound true sample playback. And in the case of the other uh, chip worth mentioning, it is the Paola. The Paola was a chip on the Amiga. It was introduced on the Amiga 1000. And so this actually did also multiple tasks. It was also for serial port, a floppy disk controller. It had the joystick controls and the audio playback. Again, the audio playback was through PCM samples. And so what it means is that in case of the Pokey and the Paola on these two chips, the music was composed by doing multi-track or tracker music. And so it's, in theory, it's a little different than what we would consider chip music. But nowadays, chip music represent all the lo-fi, 8-bit samples or synthesizers-based music of the era. And, of course, it is uh, people compose new songs nowadays with this limited technology as a way to foster creativity. And so I'm bringing all of these points uh, together to mention two things. One is that we might have a vision, but sometimes it might be limited by the technology that we have or the capabilities that we have or what we can afford, actually. And particularly, if I put my musician hat and composer hat on right now, uh, that was uh, one of the uh, struggle initially, building up a studio. How do you afford all this equipment? What do you do to get to that point? And so the other thing is limitations or constraints to foster creativity, right? How does that help? I'm uh, going to mention in uh, Forbes uh, magazine, there was uh, a guest post that discussed architecture. So Frank Gehry, of course, the Guggenheim Museum in Spain, the Disney Concert Hall in L.A., and he was asked what uh, drove uh, or what inspired his work, and he said that it was uh, limitations and constraints. One would have thought the opposite, right? The, the less boundaries or the less limitations or constraints you have, 
the more you can do, right? I mean, there's no, it's like a whiteboard, except that anybody that has stood in front of a white page or a whiteboard know that this uh, blank is actually kind of scary. And it prevents us, uh, we start going in all directions instead of having any focus at all. And it becomes harder uh, than to be creative at that point, actually. So we've played earlier a chip tune that was a synthesizer-driven chip tune. This time around, we will play a piece that is called a mod file. Basically, mod files were tracker format for playing back on, say, the Amiga or other computers. In fact, uh, the PC scene also later, maybe around from the 1990 all the way to 98, uh, was really quite expressive in creating these new uh, file formats, uh, going all the way to 64 tracks at once, uh, basically as the computers uh, were faster and they could play more tracks simultaneously. This was Café Brasil by uh, the author Jazz, and this was from the Modland Archive. And now we will go into the second part of our episode one of Something for Your Mind. At this point, we will be talking about open source, but also the people that create the, the open source software. Specifically, how do we ensure that the software itself continues on, even though interest might wane from either the developer or from some of the contributors to the project? As I was attending PyData Carolinas and I listened to one keynote, I realized that this would be very interesting to mention, which is an organization called NumFocus. But just before we get into the interview with Leah Sillen of NumFocus, I wanted to mention something. So we're in 2012. I've been using Matplotlib for a while at this point and heard the news that John Hunter, who was the lead, the creator of Matplotlib, had passed away. And then I realized just how important that piece of software was for me for not just from a commercial perspective, but from a personal perspective for some of the things I was doing, either as art or in publications, things like that. And then I started thinking, well, it could happen to any of us. All of us who write open source software, what happens when we do pass away? And so this point hit home again in 
2013, Aaron Schwartz passed away and was, uh, amongst other things, the creator of WebPy. Again, uh, it was a package that I was using and made me realize just how important these things were uh, in the ecosystem, but at the same time relied on very few individuals. And fortunately, both of these uh, projects continued on, uh, thanks to contributors, but also, uh, in the case of Matt Plotlib, thanks to uh, NumFocus. And so you're probably wondering, what is NumFocus, and what do they do, and what's the connection with Matt Plotlib? Well, we will uh, go into this interview with uh, Leah that I recorded at uh, PyData Carolinas. So you're um, listening uh, to a special podcast uh, directly from PyData Carolinas 2016. I'm Francois Dion, your host, and I am with Leah Sillen of NumFocus. And I've asked her to uh, join me here to talk a little bit about NumFocus. But before we do that, I would like for her to introduce herself and uh, her role at NumFocus. Yes. Hi, thank you. I am Leah Silen. As you said, I'm the um, executive director of NumFocus. And uh, our, our goal here at NumFocus, and um, as well as our mission, is to support open source scientific computing, um, both on the project side as well as um, helping to organize the community and provide um, the educational needs that would help be able be able to um, share knowledge between the community as well as um, with the projects and how to best use them. All right, so you mentioned a few keywords. For one, you mentioned open source, and a lot of uh, the listeners will be interested in because they, a lot of uh, them will be using or have been using open source software, and sometimes we don't really think about who is behind the open source? How is it sustainable? Uh, how is it possible to use that? And when we start doing scientific research, then we are really depending on this in a way that we would normally on commercial software, but here we are using open source software, right? So how does NumFocus help some of the the tools in this ecosystem of uh, particularly for uh, research and uh, open science? So we help um, in numerous ways. The first way, and probably our, um, our the program that's on the forefront of our help helping the open source tools is we are the fiscal sponsor um, of 18 open source projects. So our fiscal sponsorship program allows us to be able to handle financial admin and help projects seek funding. So um, NEMFOCUS does um, give some small grants, but we the main thing is that we provide a legal entity to help these projects to be able to remain sustainable by um, seeking and um, submitting proposals for grants, um, as well as corporate funding, and be able be able to give them, you know, to say we we are a five hundred one c three we are a nonprofit organization. Uh, your your contribution is guaranteed to be spent towards you know an open source tool and to have the legal entity to be able to, um, like I said, be able to back that up through the nonprofit status, but as well as being able to have the infrastructure of admin support, legal support, and, um, you know, just a network for sustainability. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I mean, just uh, the, the fact that, um, like for a user group, sometimes we we try to have uh, sponsorships, but that requires a, a 501c type of a, of a entity so people can make donations and things like yes. that. And one can't simply just uh, go and deposit that into their personal bank account. So uh, that uh, obviously is one uh, great uh, help in that regard. Plus, there's all the management, that, as you've mentioned, that's tied to that. And beside the software, I think NumFocus also helps in a few other areas, right? Right, so um, so the project, again, from the fiscal sponsorship standpoint, but also making sure, I mentioned sustainability, and so we're getting ready to launch a large sustainability project that um, is made possible through a grant from the Sloan Foundation. And that's going to be helping the projects to be able to um, both create and foster industry relationships. So they're so, um, the projects are being greatly used by industry, you know, across, um, across various domains. And to be able to bring that, to kind of create those relationships and have that um, some funding, additional funding sources come through corporations and be able to create an open dialogue between the open source projects and industry is something that we feel is vital to um, to project sustainability, and then on the on the flip side, being able to help support that com the you know the community that surrounds these projects, um, being able to create opportunities for networking and knowledge sharing through through meetups and through our conferences such as PyData, um, that's a huge resource and help to the projects being able to create the. Um, create, you know, a, I guess a, both of a, a venue and a source where that networking can take place, where folks can meet and be able to, um, you know, meet others and be able to share the knowledge, share project information, be able to gain c additional contributors. Mm-hmm. As an individual or any of the listeners or perhaps as a corporation, how can they help uh, NUM focus uh, to continue their mission? Well, there's a few ways. I, we do have open community membership, which is a free membership, and we invite um, folks to be on our membership list. We do, um, we'll say, you know, occasionally we'll list, we have a newsletter that we put out very, it's, it's not fr a frequent, it's not something that will um, crowd your inbox, but um, we will give project updates, what's going on with the 18 open source projects that are under our um, fiscal sponsorship umbrella, but also to let them know of ways that we are needing help and ways that they can participate in the community. Um, another way is to contribute. Um, you know, the projects need contributors and we, um, you know, we invite folks to get involved on that level, as well as to attend PyData conferences um, and meetups for all our projects. Many of them have individual meetups, um, and we, you know, we invite folks to get involved in that channel also. All right. And could you uh, mention uh, what is the uh, website? For it's numfocus.org. N-U-M-F-O-C-U-S.org. Very easy to remember. Yes. All right. And one uh, last thing, uh, I've noticed uh, on the website you have uh, kind of a tagline that's interesting. What is it again? Open code equals better science. Yes. So we feel really strongly that um, 
you know, open source, open, open code is, does really create better science, both on um, making sure research is reproducible, um, making sure projects are sustainable, that everyone has access to them, um, has access to, you know, to the code, and that it is, um, op it is open for all. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time, and we will definitely follow up. Perhaps add your uh, the, the different pointers for NumFocus and PyData also to uh, the links that are tied to this podcast, so uh, people can uh, also uh, continue to learn more and participate or or join. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much. All right, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Apologies for the doors slamming. Uh, opening and closing through the interview. That was a, quite a spot at uh, Pi Data Carolinas. So Leah mentioned 18 sponsored projects. Currently on the website, there are logos for 16 of them. I've also listed them in the show notes, and they are, well, first, uh, two programming languages, uh, Stan and Julia. Also, ROpenSci, which are packages for the R programming language. Also, three teaching organizations, namely uh, Data Carpentry, QuantEcon, and Software Carpentry. And other projects include Pandas, IPython, Jupyter, Phoenix, AstroPy, Matplotlib, SymPy, NumPy, and YT. So this first episode covered two different subjects, quite unrelated, and for the uh, episodes that are longer, that will be a common thing to have two different subjects back-to-back. Uh, -back. And in regard to uh, learning more also, beside having two different subjects, at the end of uh, the two uh, parts, uh, there's a small section uh, that will be featured at uh, every full-length episode. This will be called Learn More. And today, we'll learn more about Shannon Nyquist. I mentioned earlier in the episode regarding digital audio and specifically how a bitstream was converted from a binary value or a digital uh, into analog through a digital-to-analog conversion. And I did mention 16-bit uh, values and mention also a sampling rate, but I didn't get into any of the details. Now, in this section, we'll get into a little bit more detail. So if this is too technical for you, you always have the option of uh, checking out the next episode. But if you've made it uh, all the way here, you probably want to continue uh, listening a little bit more on the more technical aspects here, and that's fine. So we'll, uh, in the next few minutes, we'll cover a little bit more information here. So Claude Shannon uh, worked at Bell Labs and is... Uh, Better known for uh, two papers in computer science. Uh, one is uh, something he published in 1936, a symbolic analysis of relay and switching circuits. And then uh, the other one, definitely uh, the classic of his uh, writings, uh, Claude Shannon, The Mathematical Theory of Communications, uh, published in 1948. But uh, the paper we're interested in uh, today, it is uh, one that was published in 1949 uh, in Proceedings of the IRE uh, and with the title Communication in the Presence of Noise. And uh, under the sampling theorem, uh, he states the following. Let us suppose that the channel has a certain bandwidth, W, in cycle per second, starting at zero frequency, and that we are allowed to use this channel for a certain period of time, T. 
Without any further restrictions, this would mean that we can use as signal functions any function of time whose spectra lie entirely within the band W and whose time functions lie within the interval T. Although it is not possible to fulfill both of these conditions exactly, it is possible to keep the spectrum within the band W and to have the time function very small outside the interval t. Can we describe in a more useful way the functions which satisfy these conditions? One answer is the following. Theorem 1. If a function f of t contains no frequencies higher than w cycle per seconds, it is completely determined by giving its ordinates at a series of points spaced half w seconds apart. This is a fact which is common knowledge in the communication art. Well, let's pause right here. It might be a fact, but what does it really mean? It means that uh, if we want to reproduce a frequency of, say, 16 kilohertz or 16,000 hertz, then we would have to do one sample at each half W seconds apart. In other words, we will need two samples per hertz, right? So instead of 16,000 hertz, we would need 32,000 hertz or uh, 32,000 samples per second. And so if we need five seconds, then we would, of course, multiply by five, and this would give us the total number of samples we need to reproduce precisely this frequency. And so the number of points uh, allows us to represent this uh, signal, but in terms of the actual value at each of these samples, uh, we need to be able to uh, quantify that value. And so if we were to have a value that is one or zero, a single bit, uh, then obviously we would have a very poor resolution. Uh, in reality, uh, signals uh, music in particular, uh, if we take classical music, can range from uh, absolute silence to a very loud section, uh, potentially 80 decibel or 70 decibel in difference between the low, the quietest and loudest moment. So in order to reproduce uh, 96 decibels, then we would need uh, a lot more bits than just one. In fact, 16-bit uh, was uh, the target uh, that digital systems uh, started using. For example, the, the CD, uh, that format is 16-bit and 44 kilohertz in sampling. Professional recorders that, that came out early on were using the same 16-bit, uh, but uh, frequency of, of sampling frequency of 48 kilohertz. Currently, I'm recording this uh, podcast on equipment that can record a 24-bit and 96 kilohertz for my portable unit or from my studio unit at 192 kilohertz. And uh, to conclude on what uh, Shannon wrote, if we go back one year before in the theory of uh, communication, under band-limited ensembles of function, he does mention the following. If a function of time f of t is limited by, to the band from 0 to w cycles per second, it is, completely determined, it is completely determined by giving it its ordinates at a series of discrete points spaced 1 over 2w seconds apart in the manner indicated by the following results. Theorem 13. 
let f of t contain no frequencies over w, then f of t equals, and I'll spare you the equation, but basically is again presenting, but in a, a little more complicated way, uh, the same theorem. So, but as uh, we've introduced it as the uh, Shannon-Nyquist theorem, uh, obviously, or sometimes people uh, refer to it as the Nyquist theorem, and it is because in uh, the late 20s, Nyquist actually did make a mention of uh, that concept. But it was really Claude Shannon who popularized it at Bell Labs uh, in 1948 and 1949. So I hope you enjoyed our program, our episode one today, and uh, we'll see you next time. Don't forget to tell your friends, co-workers about uh, this uh, Polymath podcast, Something for Your Mind, and uh, to mention it on social media, if you are on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and other social media, uh, do uh, spread the message out about this uh, podcast. Until next time... This is uh, François Dion with Something for Your Mind. Something for Your Mind was recorded in the offices of uh, Dion Research.